Highly double. Grab your pants. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Yeah, it's great to be here on 31st of January. My God, the end of the first month of 2018. We started the show with Dr. Tanya Hill, who's an extragalactic astronomer. And I can, I'd like, I like saying that. <laughs> and an honorary fellow at the University of Melbourne and curator in astronomy at the Melbourne Planetarium. Anyway, she talked to us about the lunar eclipse that's on tonight. And... Um, so, depending when you're listening, you may have missed it, but it was pretty exciting. Mm. Retrospectively, it's still an exciting listen. She invites us into the sky. And coming up after that, we have Shirley Winton phoning in from IPAN. And IPAN, not to be confused with ICANN, is a, another peaceful network fighting for something that the Turnbull government isn't obviously Pro as they released a $3.8 billion fund to um, stimulate the arms industry here in Australia to hopefully catapult it, they wish, into the top 10 countries. Producing arms. Uh, yeah, not something you want to be uh, noted for. So we really. should use our feet to show disappointment. After Shelley, we've got coming up... Greg Denham. Greg Denham. Um, he might be familiar to a few listeners. Yes, because he's been on in Psychedelia, uh, certainly. And uh, he's a, the executive officer of the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. And we invite him on to talk about the, the move now, the pressure, I guess, on the, the government to introduce pill testing, given some of the events of the weekend and, uh, and overdoses. And also, you know, the moves internationally for countries like France to consider decriminalizing drugs and mm. the benefits of that. And, of course, Portugal did it in 2001, so we know that there's been good results there. Mm, it definitely can work. And then leading out the show, we had... LEMC. LEMC, which I think you'll bring a great perspective to the Rohingya situation. I believe well, he's been over a few times. Well, I mean, he has such a long history with it. I mean, he was there talking to Rohingya refugees before the crisis emerged last year. And he explained that this has been going on since the 1970s, but is certainly in the last year in 2017 has reached crisis point. Very mm. sad stories. It is. Um, we hope you enjoy the show. We start off with the moon and we end in Rohingya, a broad spectrum as per usual with Wednesday yes. breakfast. Yes, and, uh, you know, the Rohingya exhibition that Ali's been involved in is on the mm. next Thursday mm. at the um, Footscray Community Arts Centre. So go along for the opening that night, 6 to 8. Sounds really good. Sounds good. Enjoy. But coming up now, we're going to hear from... And I'm very excited to present this, as you'll hear, I think, during the interview, Tanya Hill, who's going to talk to us about the lunar eclipse. And I began, though, by, because she's a, and I've wanted to say this on, on radio for years, she's an extragalactic astronomer <laughs> and an honorary fellow, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and from the University of Melbourne. She's been the curator in astronomy and um, and at the Melbourne Planetarium and Science Works for since 1999, and she's also the Australian rep on the European Southern Observatories Science Outreach Network. So uh, she had an article published in the Conversation about the lunar eclipse, and that's why I uh, got in touch with her. But I just wanted to know, you know, why does a person take up astronomy? kind of have a strange story in how I got interested in astronomy because it turns out when I was really young I was scared of the dark and so I still remember as quite a young uh, little girl my dad taking me outside one night and showing me the stars and it was his attempt at showing me that there was nothing in the night to fear that in fact it was during the night time that the sky put on this beautiful show with all the lovely stars up there. And uh, thankfully, it worked. I'm no longer scared of the dark. And uh, ever since then, I've always been, been looking up and interested in what's going, going on above us. That's a great story. What a wonderful father you have. Yes. <laughs> so, so we're going to have a lunar eclipse. We're going to be treated to a lunar eclipse here in Melbourne. Can you tell me what a lunar eclipse is? So what happens during a lunar eclipse is the Earth's shadow falls upon the moon. 
And so this can only happen at the time of full moon because that's when we've got the sun, the earth and the moon all in a line. And so normally at full moon, the sun actually lights up the whole face of the moon and that's why we see the moon lovely and bright and full. But every six months or so, the orbits align so that the sun, earth and moon become directly into one line and you get the earth's shadow cast upon the moon. It's an amazing thing to see. So this happens every six months? Yeah, so roughly every six months we've got uh, an eclipse of some type, a lunar eclipse of some type forming. And this is because the moon's orbit is tilted by just five degrees relative to the Earth's orbit around the sun. And so that's what allows most of the time for us to see a full moon. But when the tilts are aligned, then the moon passes through the Earth's shadow. Now, the thing is, though, we haven't actually seen a total lunar eclipse in three years for here in Australia because the Earth's shadow actually has two parts to it, just like all shadows. And so you've got a really dark central part and then a brighter outer part. And if the moon just skims through the brighter outer shadow, what we call the penumbral shadow, then we really can't tell the difference. The shadow is so faint that it, it does dim the moon a little, but it's very hard to tell. And it's only on those occasions when the moon actually passes through the deep central shadow, which is what it's going to be doing tonight, that we actually get a beautiful total lunar eclipse. And what will it be like? You just said a minute ago, it's quite a spectacular thing to see. What will we see? So I love watching lunar eclipses. As they're, really, they're very leisurely to watch. Uh, the one tonight will span about three hours or so. And also, you don't need any special equipment. It's completely safe for you just to go outside, look up at the moon, find it in the sky. And at 10.48 p.m., so just before an 11 o'clock tonight, the moon will start to drift into the Earth's shadow. And we'll see, barring any clouds around, what we hope to see is that the bottom right part of the moon will start to darken while the top part of the moon will remain in sunlight. And then about an hour later, by 11.52, the moon will have fully entered the Earth's shadow. And that's when the moment of totality begins. The moment of totality sounds so amazing. It does, doesn't it? It's absolutely awesome. And I love that point of totality because there's a surprise in store for us. Because what goes on is that we find out that the Earth's shadow isn't actually black. But in fact, some sunlight can still manage to reach the moon because it passes through the Earth's atmosphere. And this reddens the light and also bends it into the shadow so that the moon can turn anywhere from a really deep uh, coppery, red all the way to a more brighter orange hue and they're forecasting that because our atmosphere is fairly clear at the moment that in fact tonight's total eclipse should leave us with a lovely bright orange moon and so the moon will be in total shadow till just after 1am and then it'll start to emerge again and that's also an amazing moment to watch as the moon moves out of shadow and you begin to realise just how bright the full moon is in the sky. What are the chances tonight that we will be able to see it? The weather isn't looking too good at this moment, although I have been speaking uh, to some colleagues of mine and as they say, there's always the chance that the clouds were clear and, and I suppose my response is that astronomers live for those chances where we get that break in the cloud and we'll hopefully we'll be able to observe this amazing thing. So we're just keeping our fingers crossed here for the moment for a lovely clear night. Or even if it's not clear, just the, the clouds to break a little bit for us to be able to see the moon. Well, I have noticed that Thursday is meant to be all clear, so maybe that moment will happen. I think the odds are good. I hope so. And uh, should we keep the kids up to watch it? Oh, look, I think it's a great thing if you're able to. I'll certainly be uh, making sure my kids are out and about and looking up at, at the moon and seeing this happen because it can be, like my experience of first looking at the, the stars, uh, it can be something that stays with you then for the rest of, rest of your life. And I think every now and again we need those moments where we kind of get out of the grind of what's happening day to day and remember that we live in an amazing grand universe to sort of have some wonder and awe 
in our lives. Yes, for sure. You can always put the children to bed early for a little nap and, and get them up. You have a few nice things to eat or drink while you stay up yeah, late. Yeah, nice midnight snacks. Yeah, I like that. I can just imagine it. Yes, all out in your jammies in your dressing gown and just sitting there. Yeah, it sounds pretty special. Where is the best place to watch it if you were going to drive somewhere you want to be out of the city and away from the light pollution? Or can we just watch it in our backyards? Because the moon is so bright, this is one event that you can see from most backyards, front yards, balconies, um, wherever you can grab a glimpse of the sky. The important thing, the moon will be in the northeast, rising in the northeast, just as the eclipse begins. And by the end of the eclipse, it'll be high uh, in the north. And so you want to make sure that you've got a good view of that northeast and northern sky. But the moon is fairly high up. As long as that's okay, you'll be able to see it. And I like the fact that we don't need any special equipment. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to see a eclipse of the sun quite a few years ago now, but you had to watch it through a particular lens to make it safe. That's right. So solar eclipses are quite uh, different objects. You've got you're looking directly at the sun there, which always should be avoided. But because we know we can look at the full moon, that's always a beautiful sight to see. And in fact, what we're seeing is actually the light uh, fading away from the, the full moon. Of course, if you do have a pair of binoculars or a small telescope, then that will give you more details to be able to see. But really, this is just a lovely, leisurely chance to look up and enjoy the night sky. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. <laughs> it's going to be worth it. It just sounds wonderful. That's uh, Dr. Tanya Hill, an extragalactic astronomer an honorary fellow at the University of Melbourne and curator in astronomy at the Melbourne Planetarium Science Works. She really does get your imagination going. Could you tell I was six years old as I was listening? <laughs> I was just in awe. <laughs> you are tuned in to 3CR Breakfast, and just before that we heard Flaming Lips feature Tame Impala, Children of the Moon, in homage to the moon and lunar eclipse that will be happening tonight. And it just sounds so exciting. It does, it does. Um, something that isn't so exciting, from my perspective at least, was the um, Turnbull government's announcement of putting together a fund, a $3.8 billion tax-funded fund together to stimulate um, the arms industry, locally grown arms industry here in Australia. Yes, uh, to, to make the world just that bit more dangerous. Yes. It just yeah, Australia's contribution. Yeah, Australia's contribution, just to encourage that sort of behaviour a little bit further and get in there and make some money off some of these... Off uh, pain. Off pain, that's it. We have um, Shirley Winton, though, from the... Uh, who sits on as the National Committee for IPAN, uh, the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network. Um, she's joining us. She's a Victorian voice and coordinator for the organisation. Um, welcome, Shirley. Thanks for joining us early this morning. Um, good morning, Patrick. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I'm Judith. It's really yeah, it's great, to have, great, great to have you here. Yeah, good morning, Judith. I, I, I really, I wasn't sure your name, but that's now I know. <laughs> yeah, that's why I thought it's always good to tell. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Our long-time listener, first-time caller, and uh, joking, Shirley, thank you for joining us this morning. <laughs> um, now, all jokes aside, though, the Prime Minister yesterday announced, or two days ago announcing that $3.8 billion um, tax fund. Did you have any? Did you have any idea that this was coming? Um, no, no. Well, yes, yes, and no. I mean, I, I think sort of a reflection. A few about two or three weeks ago, there was this small media item um, from the Associated Press. Um, uh, um, Washington had released a a directive to all their staff. Um, embassy staff in overseas embassies um, to work harder to drum up more business for the US arms manufacturing corporation. So the directive, and I actually found that press release, the directive is actually saying that the, the um, embassy staff should more actively act as salesmen and agents 
um, for the U.S. Um, manufacturers. That's, which, that's awful. Actually, that just sounds terrible. Yeah, and I've actually, I've actually found the it's, you can find it on the website um, and it, um, under the U.S. embassies um, and arms arms manufacturing. Um, so, you know, so it was obviously this is part of um, a part of uh, Trump's policy. Well, it's not just Trump; is it's the whole military industrial complex mm. in, in America, um, who basically, you know, America's um, economy is now largely based on on permanent war, on massive destruction, and um, on uh, and um, you know, killing murders of millions of people. And now Australia is being drawn into that, and so we have a situation where 3.8 billion handouts um, to the basically will be multinational arms manufacturers like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and Boeing, who already have big operations here in Australia, don't employ many people at all, in fact, um, but selling their their goods and um, using a lot of the Australian resources and and public funds like Lockheed Martin and University, the Melbourne University, um, to, to, to broaden and to build up their, their profit-making, mm. um, which is really, you know, I mean, I don't need to say it, but it's quite, quite outrageous. Um, but it, the, the way I think, the, what, the, what the interesting thing about this one as well is that this, they've used the fig leaf of creating jobs in the arms export industry. Um, and that's a way of silencing the community and heading off the outrage and criticism of Australia being involved in supporting the war profiteers. Mm. And I, you know, and I think that based on the, if you look at the number of letters in 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 daily newspapers and talkback programs, there's a huge public outrage, which which I think is really heartening and um, very positive, and I feel really optimistic about the um, the. You know the the blowback, um, but you know I, I think that um, Australia is obviously acting as as an obedient ally of the US. And if job creation was really the main aim, then it would have been far more logical and effective to invest the three point eight billion in sustainable industries like public transport, sustainable manufacturing, producing solar, renewable solar energy, public health, public education. Um, so I think it's quite transparent, the, um, you know, the myth that it's a job creation. And in fact, um, one of IPAN, IPAN's working groups, which is Peace and Justice is Union Business, have um, released the media release. Now, this working group is comprises of unions and, um, uh, and union members, and we've just released a media release saying war subsidies are a cruel joke and there's no future for workers. And if the government was really feeding them about creating jobs and sustainable jobs, that why did they close down the you know, the, the, the Holden Ford and Toyota factory, which with that sort of subsidy could have been um, retooled um, into uh, producing public transport, you know, manufacturing public transport, electric cars, um, you know, yes. it's logical. Yes, for sure. And I'm also wondering, is Australia already involved in the arms production industry? Do we already pro- already produce arms here in Australia? No, I'm not sure. I think um, this, we, we've sort of been like the little little followers, you know, sort of riding on the coattails of the big four of, of America. What I do know, though, is that um, last year, uh, people might have uh, read that the... Um, the government, the state government, the Victorian state government, the Andrews um, Labor government, had announced that it was creating a a defence manufacturing pre- precinct in uh, Fisherman's Bend, and it's going to be huge. And this is where um, I presume that uh, Lockheed Martin will will move into. So will Raytheon. Boeing is already there. Um, they're doing a similar. They're setting up a similar precinct in Brisbane, I understand. So in terms of the actual manufacturing of weapons, I'm not quite sure to what degree, but certainly I think it's the high-tech stuff that um, those companies are going to um, base from here or be an arms of those, um, 
you know, multinational uh, wool manufacturers um, will will probably will have there'll be arms or branches of those companies here. But the thing is, they're going to get a huge amount of government subsidies, and that's why they're here. And as someone said, that usually companies, big companies, usually uh, get subsidies from bank banks now. If, if they're not getting the subsidies they want, so they're turning to their allies and the government of, you know, their ally government um, to prop up their, their industry. Mm. Do you, can you remember, Shirley, last year, I think in the middle of the year, Lockheed Martin started funding or had something, you mentioned it earlier with Melbourne University. Can yeah. you remind myself and the listeners who might not be familiar with Lockheed Martin's ties in there? Yeah, that's right. So they've set up, Lockheed Martin have set up a, um, um, a laboratory. Um, you know, sounds probably innocuous, but it's, um, it's the biggest, lab- it's, well, it is apparently the biggest laboratory, Lockheed Martin laboratory outside, outside America. Um, they're doing, um, and I, I think people know that Lockheed Martin is pretty much involved in drones programs or in, in actually building drones and developing drones. And this is also being funded by Melbourne University and the government. And the director of, um, of, of the, this branch of Lockheed Martin at Melbourne University is um, Ken Beasley. So he's the managing director. Um, yeah, not a former I mean, a former defence minister. Yeah, yeah, and probably well linked into the military here yeah. in Australia. Yes, yeah. particularly particularly American military. I mean, he was he had been there for years now. Um, yes, yeah, the, the ambassador, and, and he was rubbing shoulders. People were saying he was seen quite often rubbing shoulders with all you know Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and the big um, arms manufacturers there. So I'm sure he was act he was a, he was acting as a was a, a very useful lobby for those industries. Yes, and uh, so just going back a bit, so even though the Fed, it's the federal government that's announced this new investment, it mm-hmm. sounds like state governments are already investing in an arms industry. Well, they seem to have made the commitment when um, when the Andrews government made that announcement last year, and it's a huge area, and it's, it was it's, the title it was the uh, defence manufacturing. Uh, precinct. Um, now, you know, defence is, is, as everyone knows, that's just another cover-up. It should have been called the weapons or arms industry. Um, so do, do you know what kind of arms? Well, no, that's all we don't know. Um, we just know that it's that it's going to be a precinct for um, arms manufacturing. Whether it's, I don't think it's going to be like, you know, factories um, that actually manufacture the equipment. I think is a lot of it is going to be high tech, but nevertheless, they're going to get a lot of um, assistance from from the government. Well, high tech is also lethal, as we know. And oh, if absolutely. anyone listened to the mm. Doomsday Clock announcement last Thursday, we'll know that we're now uh, two minutes to midnight, uh, two minutes close. You know, in, in terms of the way the clock uh, calculates that, or the people involved in producing the clock. So basically, it's telling us the world has become more dangerous in the last year. Mm. And uh, and part of that, uh, not only are the nuclear weapons, but the technologies and also climate change has now come into the ca- those calculations. So that was very interesting. But just coming back to IPAN, so how does IPAN feel about this development uh, as an organisation that's wanting to create and promote a peaceful Australia? Uh, well, we obviously we're outraged and we've, um, um, you know, we've, did a media release um, yesterday, along with the peace and justice union business. Um, our view is that um, that there should be no um, no public funding to the to the multi to the um, manufacturer of um, of of weapons uh, for offence. Um, we our view is that Australia needs an independent and peaceful foreign policy, which means that we don't um, we don't follow America into wars. We don't support the military-industrial complex, which is what Australia is now doing more and more. Um, and our view is, um, is that our view is that uh, whilst um, there is um, 
um, there is a need for a, uh, for a defense in this, for self-defense industry, um, but it's, 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 uh, it's self-defense industry that's only in the event of Australia being attacked, which is more likely whilst we're part of the US-Australia alliance and whilst we're hosting US bases here and we're hosting um, American Marines, the US Marines in Darwin, that actually creates more insecurity for for Australia. And oh, of course, Gap. and Pine Gap. You and know. Pine Gap, yeah, Pine Gap is, is the target, will be the target. So if it's bullshit about, um, you know, we need the alliance, we need to, to be... You know, we need Australia. Well, that we need to be made safe, but the alliance makes us safe. I think yeah. is the, the kind of story or the, the narrative. Yeah. 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 So that that's our view, and and basically what so we're advocating for an independent foreign policy, which is something that, um, you know, Malcolm Fraser also um, was advocating for a couple of years before, or a few years before he died. Yes. Um, and yeah. he was, um, you know, demonised for that, but by, you know, the establishment. And ignored, I'd say, that and book ignored, of Dangerous and Allies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he wrote that, that book, which was really very, mm. very useful. Um, so we, so we, our view is we need to develop a movement, a people's movement, uh, that calls for a peaceful and independent Australia and that we remove the US, um, US bases or all foreign bases from Australia, that we remove the US Marines, um, we develop um, friendly and cooperative relationships with all our neighbours, with our country, and we certainly don't partake in the, you know, in in the the US or any um, military industrial complex because you've got it, it's a then we're living in a society and our economy and our job security are dependent on never-ending global wars. Mm. Which yeah. Which seems ridiculous when the, the white paper was just released not long ago and it, within it it was really trying to separate itself from an American alliance and mm. staying there. The defence white Yeah, the defence white yeah. paper. But um, it seems like these sort of funds being created really are continuing to back up the US yeah, yeah. and stay uh, yeah. strong. So, that's right, that's right. And I think that, that I mean, my view anyway, and I think a lot of people are quite cynical about um, the words that were in the defence so-called mm. defence white paper, um, they were mainly in response to a growing um, disquiet in the community, but not just in the broader uh, community uh, of working people, ordinary people, but also within sections of I understand within um, the defence department about the uh, the close the close alliance that we have with the US. And how that, um, and we need to be careful not not to jeopardise our economic interests and our economic trade, well, trade with China. So there's there's all those other factors that are at the moment being played out. And in many ways, it seems that Australia is like a, a bit of a, um, you know, a, a competition grant or, or or grant for rivalries between big powers. So you've got the US on the one hand. China has economic interests, the growing economic interests in Australia as well. America is feeling threatened by those economic interests. And within the business community, there are divisions about which way to, you know, how to, how to deal with this contradiction. Mm. So, um, in some ways, the, the white paper has, has tried to, um, you know, to take on board or to ameliorate those concerns about being too close to America when it is jeopardising our economic ties with China. Mm. It seems like it might have just been all words with how it is. Yes. Um, if people were to get behind IPANs, um, movements and ideas for this year. What is the best way for people to to show support, um, educate themselves, and educate others? Is there a port of call? Yes, yes. We've got uh, an email address if people are interested in contacting us, which is um, ipan at gmail dot com. We also have a website, Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. Um, there's my mobile number. People can because we've got iPad has state groups, state committees, and in Victoria, you can contact us on my number, which is zero four one seven two eight 
0447456001. And I should just add, just for a couple of seconds, I should add that we, IPA National Coordination Committee, we just had our, um, our planning meeting for 2018 and beyond, and we identified two main areas of campaigning, and this is long-term campaigning, uh, <clears throat> and they are the um, why... Why buy into war, which is about um, the the public spending on um, uh, public spending on the on on the alliance, public spending on participation in U.S. wars. It's like move the money, and we're saying, well, the money that's spent on supporting U.S. wars, and in this case, the the U.S. military industrial complex, should be redirected towards spending on public needs, community needs. Um, health, education, developing our own sustainable manufacturing industries that create sustainable jobs. And the other cam um, campaign is, um, is um, US Marines out of Darwin or give them the bush. And that's, a, a, that's also a long-term campaign, the campaign which is partly an, an educational campaign and they both are um, about the, the, about the the Marines in Northern Territory in Darwin and the and the threat that it poses to Australian people, but also but also it's used Australia has been used as a springboard um, for regional wars. Yes, indeed, and uh, so all the best with with those goals. Thank and if you. people want to find out more, they should visit the website. And I think there's something coming up tomorrow night, February the first, something called Making Waves. That's right. That's ICANN, and uh, so we work closely with ICANN. That ICANN is International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. They, who who won? It's an international group now. And they won the. Yeah, the Nobel Peace Prize. We were very excited about that last weekend, and we were sparing a thought for the arms industry, who, who's you know, may lose a lot of money through people getting rid of their weapons. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's but right. Uh, but I understand making waves is sold out. <coughs> that's sorry. No, it's okay. I was I was doing that a little bit earlier on um, the show. So. There's some there's some bugs that's going around. Yes. This is about this but I'm um, I'm just thinking that the fact that so t can you making waves as survivors of nuclear holocaust in, yes, in yes. Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Am I right? Yes, that's right. But it's a peace boat that's been um, that's been traveling oh, every year. It's an annual event, um, and um, and it's you know it's. Um, um, there are volunteers on it, and there's some actual, you know, um, expert crews. Um, Scott Ludlam is, is on it, um, and um, various people from ICANN. And yes, survivors of, of Hiroshima, but also a survivor from Maralinga. Okay, as well. yeah. yes. So um, the fact that I think that it's sold out shows there's considerable... Yes. Concern and interest on about these issues here in Melbourne and indeed, indeed Australia. But so there's a lot of groundswell there to get behind the national campaigns that last for a long time with with IPAN and ICANN yeah. both working together to achieve similar goals. Yeah. It's been yep. so good um, to speak to you and get an insight into the work you've been doing at a national level and at a grassroots level. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you both. And good morning. Yeah, and good morning and the, <laughs> all the best for the rest of the day. Thank you. And you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We were just joined by Shirley Winton. She is on the National Board for the Independent um, uh, Australian Peace. And peaceful Network. Yeah. <laughs> Independent Peaceful Australia <laughs> Network, yes. Sorry, my tongue is getting a little bit twisted here on Wednesday breakfast. A lot going up and a lot coming down with this weather that's all about... And the clouds are going to break. Yeah, but that was great it. to get an insight into. And it is awesome to hear that people are getting around and selling out. An event. Well, I wanted to go. I checked it out. Sold out. So, they, But there is a wait list, so you never know. Jump <laughs> Tomorrow on that night. Wait, tomorrow February. night. What time again? February. Oh, I don't know what time, actually. But you'd have to check. I'm sure it be on the IPAN website and the ICANN as well, I think. Yeah, at yeah. the Dome. Oi. Up soon we're hearing from Greg, uh, Greg about Benham. France and a bit about the local in, uh, yeah. local issues here in Australia with potential pill testing. Yes. you got to remember, Nanox is a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC week, 
3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NADOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NADOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcast. Happy NADOC! And here we are, Wednesday breakfast, heading for a top of 18. Yes. Plenty on yeah, here in Melbourne up. as we wrap up January. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, it's my pleasure now to introduce Greg Denham to uh, Wednesday Breakfast. Greg is the executive officer, officer, executive officer of the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. He's been actively involved in drug policy for over 25 years, a former police officer with both local, national, and international experience um, in harm reduction. And he's been a strong advocate for evidence-informed policy and practice. So. Greg's worked with law enforcement in developing countries. I know he's on the road quite a lot last year and also an Australian representative for the US-based agency Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, which is in an international group of police officers and other members of the criminal justice system who speak out against the war on drugs and want to end prohibition. So I think he's here on the line right now. Greg, yes, you, you are fantastic, so welcome. And um, we're going to talk about the renewed push for illicit pill testing after the drug overdoses at Melbourne's Festival Hall and also France's recent look at decriminalizing all drugs, Greg. And when we spoke, we decided we could bring all that together, right? Sure. Yeah. Yes. So big welcome. And um, so the first thing is the Victorian government is once again facing pressure to introduce pill testing. The Greens and the Reason Party party are supporting it. So why is this a good idea? Look, I think um, a lot of what we talk about in terms of drug policy, as you mentioned in the intro, um, is about evidence. And the evidence that's been obtained through research and other studies, um, particularly overseas in Europe and the UK, um, has demonstrated that when... Uh, pill testing, that is um, drug testing at, at festivals, music festivals, etc., is available, um, particularly uh, pill testing that, that really does um, analyse drugs uh, comprehensively. When people that um, you know, provide their drugs um, in a drug testing scenario um, are informed that their drug, the, the substance they were going to use has... Uh, I guess characteristics um, or traces of substances which can be very, very harmful and in some cases deadly. Um, they choose, in the majority of cases, not to um, not to use that substance. In fact, they um, they kind of offer them over and, and they're destroyed. So um, the the evidence um, really is about people making an informed decision, informed choice, and it's really about um, reducing risk and reducing harms for those people that choose to use um, illicit substances at those events. And and it's not really a new idea. I, I mean, I remember attending a, a health promotion conference over 10 years ago now, maybe even 12, 13 years ago, and I saw a presentation by a doctor from McGill University in Montreal, and McGill's a very well-known medical school there, and, and he and colleagues used to go to the, the concerts and to the festivals with all their equipment, and, at the t- and he showed slides of the different drugs that they had found and what they were looking at and the equipment. But I was thinking um, before, while I was driving here that the drugs he would have shown us that day, that night, like 13 years ago, were, were probably quite different from what we're seeing now. Yeah, look, I think pill testing um, and substance testing has been been around for a long, long time. Like we have been testing uh, substances. In fact, uh, you know, most police agencies have been testing drugs for you know, decades. Um, in terms of, I guess, a community-based approach or an event-based approach, we first started to talk about it in Victoria back in the mid-1990s, and I was actually with Victoria Police at the time, and um, there was a proposal to have... Um, Pill testing, but uh, the, the police were kind of very 
cagey about it and unsure about the legal situation in terms of running those types of um, programs. You know, in terms of the types of substances, a lot of the substances which are tested have been around for quite a while. And we're talking mostly about uh, ecstasy, MDMA um, or, or analogues or, or similar types of substances. So, you know, the, the type of uh, substance which is in a pill form and is taken orally and um, may contain different types of um, additives or other compounds which, um, you know, people that manufacture the, these um, drugs um, use um, and produce. And, uh, you know, the, the research, particularly in Europe, goes back um, decades and uh, it's been used in, in Europe, particularly in places such as the Netherlands and, and Denmark and other countries, you know, for, for quite a while. So, the, look, this is nothing revolutionary. It's not something that's just kind of all of a sudden popped up. It, it's, it, it's got a long history, and um, one of the lead researchers in the UK, um, Professor David Caldicott, who's now currently based in Canberra, um, has conducted research in the UK, and, and the results clearly demonstrate that there are significant benefits, harm reduction benefits, for those people that do have their drugs tested. And you say it's been talked about since in Australia, uh, since 1997, and here we are, you know, 20 years later, a little more, and mm. uh, still it hasn't happened. Uh, what's, mm. the, what's the problem? Well, I don't know what the problem is. It seems that um, there's going to be a trial very soon in Canberra, and um, there, there was going to be a trial before um, Christmas at a... At a at at a, an event in Canberra, but it just ran into some technical difficulties in terms of the um, permission from the um, the owners of the, the property. Um, they, they're now very confident that it will get up soon. Um, you know, the police in Canberra are supportive. Um, police in the UK, there's a, a, a senior academic, Fiona Meacham, out in Australia at the moment talking about pill testing in the UK, and she's going to be presenting her findings um, in a couple of events, of events coming up and she has said that the police are supportive. Um, you know, they're supportive in Europe. Um, it, it seems that the police are the major impediment to pill testing going ahead. Um, it, it's uh, quite... Um, I, I don't know. There seems to be some issue with the police around uh, pill testing. Um, I th I, my personal opinion is that I think it's, it's an issue for them in terms of... Uh, I guess, being seen to be um, condoning drug use or, um, you know, sending the wrong message. The usual narrative or commentary that we get when uh, we propose um, harm reduction strategies such as injecting rooms, the same argument was put up. So there should be no reason why we cannot conduct a pilot program with police using their discretion um, at a music festival in Victoria to mm. analyse drugs um, and what today. We could do it today. Yeah, and what do you say to people who say it will promote drug use? What's your response to them? Well, um, I, I think that uh, you know people that say, "Oh, it's sending the wrong message," or it promotes drug use, um, aren't aware that uh, drug use um, is already um, quite popular, and the people that use um, substances at those events um, aren't um, the sort of people that uh, will necessarily listen to what uh, the police and others have to say in terms of. Um, you know, dissuading them from using drugs. Um, you know, as far as we're concerned, I think the, the the fact is that the majority of people that use substances at those events actually do so quite safely. Yes. And people that use use drugs actually at those events are very smart and, and very um, informed about their drug choices. So, you know, send, say, saying that it'll send the wrong message, really, um, you know, we need to change that message. We need to um, change the message to... We're concerned about your safety. We recognise that you're going to do it anyway, so we want to reduce the risks and we'll provide, I guess, um, some programmes that will enable you to make an informed choice. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. And is this sort of pressure helping um, break down that wall of communication between, say, drug users and police in terms of that coexisting? Because it seems like there is a wall right there that has been existing for 20-odd years, if not more, between the police and drug users. Um, yeah. Look, I think you're, you're absolutely right, and uh, I, I think, you know, it's been 15 or 16 years, and look, I've been in this area for quite some time, as Judith said in uh, her introduction, and uh, I, I saw a huge shift in the early 2000s, particularly with the federal government, with John Howard. Uh, through the 80s and 90s, there had been a strong focus around health and health issues and harmonisation uh, with drug policy, but the narrative changed significantly when John Howard 
um, saw um, a real opportunity to shift, um, I, shift I guess shift the focus more towards policing law enforcement. Um, he took a particularly a strong moral perspective um, around drugs and we've been living with that legacy ever since. We were world leaders when it came to drug policy reform back in the 80s and 90s but um, since that time, since the early 2000s, um, there has been this kind of almost um, a impenetrable wall put up by the police that, that um, means that they, they, they are very, very difficult to shift when it comes to drug policy um, reform. And, um, you know, we, we've had drug diversion programs, which are a great initiative, but they're over 20 years old. Uh, so, you know, we, we need to look at some, um, I guess, some um, new approaches um, and, you know, as Judith said in the introduction, one of the, one of the um, main conversation points internationally is around drug decriminalisation, which um, is gaining momentum um, in many countries. And I think, I think it's something that we need to talk about here. Yes, indeed. And, uh, I mean, I also find the, the, the thing of, you know, John Howard invoking the, so I would put in quotes, moral argument, because I think there's a morality in supporting people, helping them to stay alive, having dialogue. I think, I think the kind of morality John Howard talked about is a, a very narrow mm. kind of thing, and I think there's a bigger public caring for people morality. So I think, you know, yeah, but that's, yeah. A, yes, a bit of a diversion from the uh, decriminalization. But, Paddy, did you want to say something? Yeah, it's been, a, I think you were touching on it, Greg, it's been a hard narrative to break that John Howard has laid the tracks for. Um, but as we're heading towards that, France moving to decriminalise drugs is a huge movement and must put a lot of pressure and um, rethought into the, how the police and community members um, confront drugs and deal with drugs and educate themselves around drugs. Look, look um, it, is a, it is a significant move. And I was just looking through some of the other um, recent media um, coverage um, in Canada and also Norway uh, around the same issue. So there is this um, conversation that's happening internationally around drug policy reform. And decriminalisation is, um, you know, a word that comes up quite regularly. We know that uh, Portugal, for example, decriminalised all drug use back in 2001. And, and they've um, really seen some significant improvements in terms of the way in which people see um, or view drug use. And, um, and, and I guess attitudes towards drug use has changed. Plus, there's been some major benefits for governments, particularly the Portuguese government, which was pretty much broke at the end of the uh, 1990s. And uh, they uh, channeled a lot of the resources that they saved or the money that they saved from decriminalisation um, away from prisons, courts and police towards education, health programs, um, you know, the, the sort of primary prevention stuff that we know is really critical in terms of um, preventing um, particularly problematic um, and chronic levels of dependency uh, because we often talk about, you know, the drug being the problem, but when someone has a chronic dependency issue around drugs, it's not so much the drug that's the issue, it's, it's other issues in their lives. So, um, so certainly um, France, um, they're discussing it now. They're uh, talking about uh, different models that, 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 are, that are options. Um, you know, the, the, the talk of often starts with cannabis, but there is now uh, further discussion about other illicit drugs being decriminalised in several countries. Yeah, so, I mean, that that's really great to hear. And then Portugal, I think they decriminalized 2001, didn't they, around that? Yeah. So there's a there's a strong history that this has been, you know, this has worked well and made a, a huge difference. Greg, it's been great to talk to you, and thanks for getting up early. We always are grateful here on Wednesday breakfast. Oh, no, no, I was, up, uh, I was up early. I, I um, went for a bike ride, uh, so I've been up very, very early. So okay, no well, but you're going to have to stay up this. late tonight now to watch the lunar <laughs> eclipse. <laughs> and keep the kids up too. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, right. Greg, if people want to keep up on these issues, though, they can uh, subscribe to the Leap newsletter. I think. And uh, yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, uh, we we have a newsletter. Look, people can contact me through the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. It's www.ydhf.org.au. Great, and also they can tune into Psychedelia on Sunday afternoon, sure. two o'clock here at Three Sierra. Thank you so much, Greg. Sure. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for it. Bye. Bye. Yes. And um, one of the issues that you mentioned uh, both last year and also, you know, over uh, that's still with us uh, is the issue of Rohingya refugees. And it's important, I think, to maintain our thoughts and our focus on this story because there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. 
that are affected. And um, so today, uh, now, we're going to be speaking to LEMC, and he's got an exhibition coming up. He's a photographer and human rights activist. And in May 2016, he visited Rohingya refugees and um, internationally displaced camps, people's camps, both in Myanmar and in Bangladesh. And uh, his exhibition is a result of that. It's called Rohingya, Refugee Crisis in Colour, and it documents his visit and the ongoing genocide against Myanmar's Muslim minority ethnic group. So, um, but also, this exhibition will also have um, photos shot by Rohingya refugees themselves. So let's um, let's go across and speak to Ali MC. You there, Ali? Good morning, guys. How are you doing? Yeah, doing well, well. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks for coming on this morning. So, Ali, I'm just interested in, in how you... Um, well, first of all, welcome. I don't know if I said that, but I meant to. <laughs> and um, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I'm just wondering how you became involved with Rohingya refugees. I mean, what prompted you? And this was before, like in 2016, it was before the worst of the crisis, which we've seen, particularly since August last year. So, so why did you go? Um, yeah, well, that's a good question, one I get asked quite a bit, and particularly, obviously, because. Yeah, as you say, I was over there before this whole thing kind of hit the headlines. But um, So I was over there in 2016, and that's actually the third time that I've visited Myanmar. And the first time was in 2008, when Aung San Suu Kyi was still um, under house arrest. And I spent a month traveling around and just trying to investigate what had, you know, what was going on. And, you know, you hear all these stories about Burma and the treatment of Aung San Suu Kyi and the military dictatorship. So I just got really interested and intrigued in the country and the people and, and some of the conflicts that were going on and ended up meeting a Buddhist monk at that time who we hung out a fair bit and he explained a lot about the political system. I then went over in 2010 uh, when the country was on the way to being so-called democratized and then in 2016, I was over there again visiting um, my Buddhist monk friend, and we decided just basically to go out and see what was going on with the Rohingya situation because we'd heard about it and read about it. So we basically just caught a bus over the mountains and um, ended up, yeah, getting government permission to go into the IDP camp. And then I just followed the story over into Bangladesh because I understood that people were fleeing to go over there even at that time. I just want to come back to your Buddhist monk friend because, of course, there's been a lot of conflict in Rakhine province between the uh, the Buddhists there and uh, and the Muslim uh, peoples there. Yes, yeah. Uh, but yeah. I also understand that the Buddhists in Rakhine province are not the same group as the, the broader Buddhists in Myanmar. Am I correct about that? Generally speaking, yes, you are correct in, in that... Um, Myanmar obviously is an extraordinarily complex place. It's a country whose borders are the result of colonization, and as the British and Europeans will want to do, they'll draw, draw a line on a map and go, well, that's now a country. It's so and true. so the, the dominant um, ethnic group in Myanmar is the Bama Buddhist group, which is from the Bama region, which is the valley region of central Myanmar, and Bama is where the term Burma came from. Uh -huh. However, surrounding, surrounding... So if you can imagine Myanmar is like a bowl... The Bama are at the bottom of the bowl and around are these mountains in which there's various different, around 14 different major ethnic groups of various religions and ethnic makeups. Then you go over the mountains and you hit like a floodplain and that's Rakhine State, which used to be called Arakan, which used to be its own independent kingdom, predominantly Buddhist, but also with this Muslim minority group that has kind of came across from uh, the Bangladeshi area, but, you know, centuries ago, um, and just with trade and all the rest of it. So Arakan used to be an independent kingdom, and even now there is an Arakan army. I ended up interviewing one of the people from the Arakan um, People's Party. They're trying to separate from the rest of Myanmar because they've got natural resources there, but and they're a highly exploited region by the, the central Burma Buddhists. Yes, so and I imagine one of the key thing. Yeah, that's the, one of the key things to understanding this is Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, National League for Democracy are predominantly Burma Buddhist people, so that's their their uh, initial allegiance in the in the spectrum of allegiances is to this Burma ethnic group and this quite um, hardcore Buddhism. Yes, and I mean I think that that's a, a whole other story really to to look into uh, because I've again seen mixed reports where both the Buddhists and Muslims in some ways work well together in Rakhine in that they 
um, you know, share farm equipment and, uh, you know, support each other. But there also seems to be this other layer of very strong dislike. So, yeah, and, and then, you know, how that fits with the Buddhist idea of compassion is is just a whole uh, a whole other story. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we could be here for quite a while talking yes. about that. So. Yeah, and of course, yeah. this, this wouldn't be the only time that Buddhists have colluded with um you know, a, a militaristic government. I mean, the story in Japan is also quite clear where they trained Japanese soldiers during the war. So anyway, we yeah, another story. But uh, looking at the, the Rohingya crisis in November 2017, there were estimates that more than 820,000 Rohingya refugees had left Myanmar for Bangladesh, at least 607,000 since August 25, 2017, and more than half the population of Rakhine State displaced in just 10 weeks and almost 300 villages destroyed, according to Human Rights Watch. So the figures are are, are powerful and worrying um, in that sense. So what are the people that you're in touch with, the Rohingya people, what are they saying to you about their situation? Well, it's pretty... Um, uh pretty bleak, obviously, as you can imagine. That's a huge understatement. Um, the interesting thing is is that this, these types of um, attacks against the communities and these exclusions of Rohingya communities have been going on for quite some time. What I hadn't realized until I got to Bangladesh was that there are refugee ca- permanent refugee camps in southern Bangladesh that have been there since the early 90s when this had actually type of thing, this ethnic cleansing or genocide, um, had actually occurred even back then and even prior to that, the early 70s. So I met some young Rohingya people who had never even been to Myanmar, that you can stand on the side of the River Naf and actually look across and see Myanmar. It's only a few miles over the river. But these guys have been born and bred and lived their whole entire existence in a, you know, extraordinarily difficult situations in a refugee camp in southern Bangladesh. So these these new influx of refugees um, is obviously just adding to that crisis, and of course um, there's been you know it's a, a slow uptake of international support for this for this cohort of people. Um, so this, the conditions are extraordinarily dire. And the interesting thing about the exhibition, as you mentioned in the intro, was that um, I've been getting sent photographs from people who are shooting photos of inside the camps and so on on their mobile phones. And so that's actually going to be part of the exhibition. So I think there's around 60 photographs that show people and the conditions and so on for life inside these camps as, as it is right now. Well, that, that sounds like a really interesting exhibition and really you know something we should get out to. You mentioned that this has been actually going on since the 1970s, this camp. So why has it suddenly been ramped up in the last couple of years? Uh, well, yeah, sorry, that's probably too big a question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's huge. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Well, there, there, there are indicators. Um, no, one is the obvious, which is foreign investment in the region. So one of the reasons, um, going back to Arakan wanting to be their own independent state, is it's almost a little bit like the Congo in that this particular area holds a lot of natural resources. Mm. There's natural gas there and so on. China has already built an oil pipeline that goes from the coast of Rakhine State through to southern China. Um, and there's, as um, we've discovered, that you know companies like Woodside Petroleum are even exploring in this area and so on. So as per usual, there's a lot of conflicts uh, globally around natural resources. And my understanding, this happens to... My suspicion is this is a, a huge driving part of this kind of ethnic nationalism to drive out the Rohingya. Um, one of the interesting things in Myanmar law is that once land becomes vacant and is unpopulated, it returns to the property of the state. So oh, if you have read the articles that where they've been burning down villages, and you can see the villages have been burnt down from these satellite images that um, you know organisations like uh, Human Rights Watch have been accessing and driving people off the land and burning down the villages and, and eradicating people, suddenly it's the, the, the classic chestnut of terra nullius that no one lives here and so yes, we can appropriate the land. Yeah. That's correct, yeah. And so we're talking about also uh, Rakhine State's extraordinarily poor, underdeveloped um, area in Myanmar. Myanmar is already fairly, you know, a poverty-stricken area um, country, but this is really, really... Uh, long spectrum of having any kind of infrastructure and economy. And so 
it's very easy to whip up the sentiment, as we see also in these types of campaigns, of fear and so on for the other. So the Buddhist Arakanese farmers are uh, told, you know, the Rohingya are your enemy, they've, exploded, they've, they've taken your, your ancestral land, we've got to drive them out. Um, right, and okay. So well, all of these mm. types of, uh, you know, we see this play out all over the world, and, and this is, uh, my feeling is this is yet another one of those examples. Mm. And so bringing it back to your, the exhibition, how long has it been um, in the work for and what are you hoping to achieve with this exhibition? It sounds like you've got a lot of information swimming around in your own head and um, are linked in to a lot of people who have had lived experiences and it is great to hear that some of these photos are from that space and give people in Melbourne at least a chance t- to look through. Yeah, absolutely. So the exhibition originally showed as part of the 2017 Human Rights Arts and Film Festival in which I just had 12 of my medium format photographs on an exhibition uh, actually at the Fitzroy Library and it was just the initial, okay, let's just try and get um, this information out there. And again, this was in May 2017, so just before it all kicked off. Um, Footscray Community Arts approached me and said that they were interested in re-showing it because this issue had flared up and it is ongoing. And so we thought, um, you know, it'd be great to expand it so it wasn't just, you know, LEMC's photographs, but let's, uh, I had people, as I mentioned, I had people sending me photos of what was going on. So it's like, well, let's um, use some of these photos from inside the camps from refugees and like aid workers. And then also we've expanded it. So I linked up with a group who had produced a documentary um, specifically on the sexual violence that has been perpetrated against Rohingya women and girls as part of this strategy of ethnic cleansing and genocide. So that will be shown as well. And also some aerial drone footage that was shot that shows the scale of both the camp, the current camps and also um, Rohingya people like fleeing to the border on foot. So we're trying to portray like a range of... Um, of viewpoints on on the issue, I guess, is probably the best way of putting it, so that there's multiple angles on it and um, almost, in a way, just demonstrating the complexity of the issue. And the aim of the exhibition really is to promote education and awareness, but also hopefully prompt people into some kind of action around this, because this this issue isn't going away anytime soon. That's for sure. And uh, I also, just before we come back to the exhibition, I also noticed that... uh, in November last year, Bangladesh and Myanmar signed an agreement on return of displaced persons <laughs> so they can come back to Rakhine State. But there's been criticism of the agreement by Human Rights Watch and the UN, both saying the safeguards are not in place. So are any of the people you're talking to um, thinking about going back? Um, I haven't spoken to anyone in particular about that. I, I would... I'd be pr- pretty reluctant to do so at this point. Yes, um, of course. But no, I understand. I, I would, mm. yeah, but I like I can't imagine from what the scale of the brutality of what has gone on. Um, so I attended a tribunal on this in uh, Kuala Lumpur in September last year, and some of the witness testimonies of some of the horrendous, um, that's as I mentioned, sexual violence, the murder of um, men, men and boys, um, and. Over around half, my understanding is around half of the current refugee population in Bangladesh are children um, who often have no parents and so on. So a lot of the photographs that people are sending me are of children or elderly people or uh, mothers, young mothers. Because that's who's left. That's who's left. So classic ethnic cleansing is you kill the men and the boys and so on and then um, violate the women and so on. um, And so... I can't imagine people being too, point being. I can't imagine people being too terribly excited to return to this country that they're still not citizens of. They still have no rights as citizens. They still remain a stateless people uh, that are subject to persecution. Mm. So to find out more, you know, it would be really good to go along to the exhibition, and uh, also I believe you have a website, LEMC, that people can go to as well. Yeah, that's just aliency.com.au. That's just me promoting my um, you do? Okay. Uh, stuff. So, but, um, yeah, but, so, yeah, but it is you, a way to get information. Kind of, mm. That's right, yeah. So, and at the opening, the opening is next Thursday, the 8th of Feb. At 6.30, uh, we'll is that right? Uh, between 6 and 8. Oh, between 6 and, and 8, and that's at yeah, the community... At Footscray Community Arts Centre. 
Okay, good. And so, yeah, yeah so that's all, another place to get information. And it sounds like it'll that's be an right. amazing opening and an amazing night. And there will be some music. Yeah, the, um, yes, we're going to be performing. But the other thing is, on Mar- if people keep an ear out, on March the 3rd, what we're hoping to do at Footscray is hold a, a Rohingya community event with some food and music. The details of that we haven't, we haven't got in places yet. But again, that'll have Rohingya people speaking about you know their own experiences and so on. So again, the aim is to try and facilitate um, those voices. So keep an eye out on the website and so on, and on social media. And we'll be once we get the community event happening, we'll be promoting that as well. And that'll be another opportunity for people to oh, come. Oh, great! Well, thanks from again, the Rohingya community. Mm. Mm. And if people can't get no to the event, what is another way for people to put pressure on? Find out bit more information or create that groundswell of awareness that hopefully leads to Australia taking a better stance and more um, involvement in the in the case that's happening. Yeah, right. absolutely. Well, I think um, contacting uh, Julie Bishop's office is one thing. So Australia um, funds the Myanmar government for various aid programs. Um, the Australian Defence Force is uh, training the Myanmar army in various aspects. Um, and as I mentioned, Woodside Petroleum are also exploring in that that vicinity and in that region. So contact in these agencies, contact in the government. Um, Australian government needs to make a much more determined stance against the Myanmar government and especially against Aung San Suu Kyi's complicit silence. So there's many ways that we can kind of gather together and also jump online and try and find and support local Rohingya people in the area. Thank you very much, LEMC. We're going to lead out today's program with a tune of yours, um, Exile. We won't be able to fit it all in because you've been speaking words of um, a lot of knowledge there, so it's been great to hear your perspective and I hope people can get down to the show. Thanks very much, guys. Have a good day. You're tuned to Wednesday Breakfast with pack Show. Make sure you have a look at the moon tonight. Judith will be. Um, it was great to hear from LEMC there. Thank yeah. you for your ears. Oh. <laughs> Wobbly. <laughs> Wobbly old. Hey, hey, maybe that's a good just moment to just say 3cr.org.au. If you want to donate to 3CR and help our wobbly studio, get onto it. <laughs> <laughs>